Hi, I'm Gracie, and I'll be doing the Bible reading today. Um, so we're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1-24, to and I would encourage you to follow along in your handout. Now for the matters he wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each one of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the, Lord, is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called when called, is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person that's responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Well, Justin Timberlake loves sex. Uh, In 2006, he declared to Jay Leno that he and Cameron Diaz loved having sex. Uh, Leno asked him if marriage was on the cards and uh, Timberlake responded, well, that's the thing. We love having sex. Why would we want to ruin a good thing and get married? Uh, Clearly, JT is not bringing marriage back. He's bringing sexy back. Uh, And he's concerned that marriage would be something that gets in the way of sex. Uh, As it turns out, they split up a year later. Um, So I'm not sure what's happening to JT at the moment. But we live in this society that is obsessed with sex. Uh, We fear that marriage might ruin that, or or almost as bad, it might delay it. 
And yet at the same time, we're kind of in a culture where people are obsessed about marriage as well. The average Australian wedding now costs more than $36,000. Girls, even just being a bridesmaid, you may know, can cost you close to $1,000 once you've got the dress and the hair and the makeup and all that kind of thing. Now, I reckon you can actually do a whole wedding for less than $1,000. Come and talk to me afterwards for a low consulting fee. I'll give you some tips. But the obsession with the sort of fairy tale wedding, the big day, the happiest day of your life, uh, it's so out of control that an organisation as unromantic as the Australian Securities and Investment Commission actually has a web page on how you can do your wedding more cheaply. Uh, And of course, we're in the middle of a national debate at the moment where marriage is so highly prized that the government is considering changing the definition of it so that a broader range of relationships can be described as marriage. We're a society that simultaneously values sex and is concerned about marriage, but on the other hand, we value marriage enormously. But what does God say about love, sex and marriage? Because it would actually be really useful to hear from the guy who invented it all. And that's what we're going to look at today in the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. I see Paul had planted a church in Corinth and sometime later the Corinthians had written to him sort of explaining their understanding of various topics and getting his feedback on them. Uh, And 1 Corinthians is Paul's reply to that letter from them. And in the first first verse of chapter 7, we get one of the Corinthian statements. That it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, if you've been following us through 1 Corinthians, then that should strike you as a little bit odd. Because back in chapter 6... Paul's been rebuking the Corinthian church for sleeping with prostitutes. So what's going on here? How can they be sleeping with prostitutes and simultaneously be saying it's good for a man not to sleep with a woman? Maybe it's just different groups in the church, they've got different problems. But actually, as we read on in this chapter, we discover from Paul's response, that actually the Corinthians are saying they think it's good not to have sex with your wife. See it there? He says, um, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. So how do you end up with that kind of worldview where you think, It's bad, it's wrong to sleep with your husband or wife, but it's right to sleep with prostitutes. It's a fairly unusual view of the world, uh, at least for us, although it seems to have been a fairly common one at the time. So here's a speech from the historian Plutarch, not a Christian, uh, a speech that he made to his newly married friends on their wedding night. If, therefore, he says, a man in his private life who is incontinent and dissolute in regard to his pleasure commits some peccadillo with a paramour or a maidservant, his wedded wife ought not to be indignant or angry, but she should reason that it is respect for her 
which leads him to share his debauchery, licentiousness and wantonness with another woman. Now, that's a heck of a best man speech, isn't it? (laughs) Don't use that speech. Look, your husband, your newly married husband, he'll probably sleep around, but actually, don't worry about it because he's doing that because he loves you. He loves you so much that he doesn't want to degrade your marriage with his lust. That's why he's visiting the prostitutes. And Paul is just like, whoa, whoa, what just happened here? What do you think you're doing? Have sex with your own wife. Have sex with your own husband. In verse 4, he explains to them that their bodies aren't simply for themselves. They're for each other. Now, we do need to be careful with this. uh, Because like a number of things that Paul says in this chapter, this has been twisted by abusers. As if the Bible says, it's not your body, it's mine. You have to have sex with me whenever I want. But Paul doesn't say your spouse can demand sex and you have to comply. He's not saying you can demand sex and your spouse has to comply. He's saying if you're married, you can't say my body just belongs to me and I can do with it whatever I like. That my body is too pure to be sullied by sex. Or on the flip side, your body is too pure to be sullied by sex. So I'm off to a brothel so that you can stay pure. No, Paul says, your body is not for you. It's for your husband or wife. It's almost like Paul is kind of scratching his head here and going, why why would anyone be thinking this? Why would anyone not want to have sex with their husband or wife? Why would you deprive each other? And he, he sort of scratches his head for a while and he finally comes up with a reason. Oh, well, I suppose, just possibly, You might actually need the time that you might spend having sex in order to pray. Could be that you've had a really long day at work, you've been busy with the kids, and there's stuff that you really need to pray about. It's like, well, yeah, I guess. I suppose, like, in that situation, I suppose, briefly, for a bit, you could stop having sex and take some time to pray together, but... Like, don't make it long, and you've both got to agree to it, and get back together again as soon as you can, so that you're not tempted by sexual immorality. See, God has this radically different view of sex from Justin Timberlake. God says marriage isn't the place that sex goes to die. It's actually the place where sex should start and grow and flourish. Sex is great, says God. He made it. It's not like he went, oh, gee, that was, a, that was a dumb idea. I should have gone with some other sort of means of reproduction. Break off a finger and stick it in the ground or something. <laughs> no, sex is good. It's a good gift from God to unite man and woman together for life. Without fear of abandonment, without fear of being used for a night or a month or a few years and then thrown away. It says, don't despise marriage, don't despise sex. Uh, but if some in our society despise marriage, others have bought into a kind of fairy tale view of it, where 
the woman is always the beautiful princess and the man will always be the knight in shining armour, where marriage will just solve all my problems. But the problem with the fairy tale view of marriage is that it's a fairy tale. <laughs> it's actually not reality. But yes, marriage is good. It's a good gift of God. But if you're single... You need to realise that there are plenty of frustrations and tensions and temptations in marriage. It's not always easy. It won't solve all your problems with lust. It won't compensate you for all your inadequacies or deal with all your hopes and fears and longings for meaning and significance. It's a good gift from God. But it's not God. Marriage can't bear that kind of weight. It can't provide you with meaning and significance. It can't save you. Because we're all damaged by sin and marriage between two sinful people, well, that will be difficult. It's just unavoidable. So don't elevate marriage so that it becomes something that it can't possibly be. In fact, Paul wants to argue that in many ways you're better off staying single. Like he is. You can see it there in verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am, that is, unmarried. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. There's all sorts of benefits to staying unmarried, and we'll talk about that a bit more next week. But Paul's also saying, don't be a hero. If if you can't control your desires, if your sex drive is so strong that it is really just consuming all your thinking, then don't be a hero as uh, as if staying single is the only way that you can serve God. No, by all means get married, he says. But of course... Uh, For many of us, getting married just may not be an option. You might actually never find someone that you want to marry. You might never find someone who wants to marry you. And it may be that the only person you want to marry is off limits for some reason, because they're already married, or they're a close relative, or they're the same sex. And that last one is pretty controversial at the moment. Australia is currently debating same-sex marriage and it's been framed as a matter of equality. It's not fair that people who are attracted to the same sex can't get married. And an appeal to fairness is very powerful. Uh, Little children, they understand that. They understand fairness straight away. We don't like it when things are unfair, and rightly so. And it's also absolutely true that we should treat people who are attracted to the same sex well. Because they're our friends, they're our family. They're part of our churches, part of our Christian union. And if you're a Christian who's attracted to the same sex, then we're glad to be partners with you in the gospel. That's terrific. We're glad to share in Jesus with you. If you're not a Christian and you're attracted to the same sex, then we're really glad that you're here too. We hope you get to know Jesus and delight in his love for you in the same way that we have. We think that you'll find some of the best friends that you'll ever make here. 
But the same-sex marriage debate, I think, is not actually about fairness. Because no Australian adult is actually banned from getting married. Anyone is free to do that, provided they can find someone who is willing to marry them. The real question is, what exactly is marriage? Is it essential that marriage involve two people of the opposite sex? Or is that just a, a baseless kind of tradition that we can change? You know, if God says that, that male-female complementarity is an essential part of marriage, and he does, it's how he's created us, uh, he's made us to fit together, just even biologically, to produce children to be a picture of Christ in the church. The question is, can we just ignore that and redefine marriage to be between two people regardless of sex? And at one level, the answer is obviously yes. Of course we can. Because Australia's not a theocracy, it's a democracy. If the government wants to pass laws that says it's not essential to marriage that it be between a man and a woman, then it can do that. I'm not going to be outside picketing the parliament any more than I picket them over the existence of Burswood Casino or Lotto or abortion clinics. If a gay couple moves in next door, then I'll be inviting them over to dinner and I hope that we'll become friends. And I hope that you would do the same thing. But that doesn't mean that such a law would be good or wise. It doesn't mean that it fits with reality. And it doesn't mean that it would be a blessing to same-sex people, same-sex attracted people. I think it actually can't be. Because in the end, it runs against the way that God has designed us. With the best will in the world, same-sex marriage won't provide the unity and security and the family that marriage was designed to be. But I don't think this is just a homosexual issue. I think this, is, this debate is part of a broader issue in society. The idea that if you don't get married or you never have sex, then your life is not really worth living. It's kind of subhuman. Virgins are kind of an object of, well, they might be an object of lust, but more often an object of pity or ridicule. I mean, what, a, what an awful thing to be a virgin for your whole life. That's what society thinks. And therefore, sex and marriage are the answer. But actually, they're not. Because <laughs> sex and marriage can't provide a solid foundation for meaning in your life, whatever sex you're attracted to. There's only one person who can provide the sort of foundation for meaning and significance in life. And interestingly enough, it's a man who never got married, a man who never had sex, and yet was the most fulfilled person who has ever lived. Because he knew God. He knew him intimately. And through being united to Jesus by faith, we actually get to know the Father too. That's actually the reality that sex and marriage are pointing towards. It's that union with Christ between him and the church. The idea of sex and marriage providing ultimate meaning and fulfilment is actually not reality. It's a fairy tale. A fairy tale that points towards the truth but still a fairy tale. 
The reality is found in Jesus. One of the problems with that sort of fairy tale view of marriage is that when things don't live up to your expectations, you might be tempted to call it quits, to just throw in the towel and give up. But have a look at verses 10 and 11 with me. Paul writes, To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Now when Paul says, uh, I give this command, not I, but the Lord, what he means is he's actually got a quote from Jesus about marriage that he's pointing back to, like uh, Mark chapter 10, where Jesus says, What God has joined together, let man not separate. But we need to be careful about this again, because these verses have been used by various people to guilt their spouses into staying with them, even as they abuse them. But when Paul and Jesus command couples not to divorce, they're not talking about domestic violence or spousal abuse. If a husband, and it usually is a husband, unfortunately, uh, if he's abusing his wife, then he is doing something that is evil. And the church ought to confront him about it. They ought to protect the woman. And if the man refuses to genuinely repent, if he refuses to genuinely change his ways, then actually it's him who's ending the marriage, not her. He made promises to love her and to cherish her as long as they both shall live. And it's him who's broken the promise. It's not her. He is the one to blame. Not her. Let's be very clear about that. But Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about the fact that many marriages, both then and now, don't end for that reason. Many of them end for what lawyers call irreconcilable differences. And Paul's saying that the solution to that is not just to leave and move on to the next person but to actually work towards reconciling the differences, to sort things out. And that can be very hard. That can be very difficult, because usually by the time it's got to that point, there's a whole history of problems and issues behind it. But for those of us who have been reconciled to God and to each other in Christ Jesus, then we know how good reconciliation is. We know the beauty of that intimate relationship. And that's actually something we want to work towards. We want to work towards that with others and especially with our husband or our wife. But then you might think, yeah, but what if I'm actually married to someone who's not a Christian? And we'll see next week that Paul says Christians shouldn't marry non-Christians. But what if neither of you were Christian when you got married and then one of you, well, then you have become a Christian? The question is, in that case, is the marriage still legitimate? Should you stay or should you go? What about the kids? Will they somehow be spiritually contaminated by my non-Christian spouse? And Paul says, no, not at all. Verse 12, uh, where he doesn't have a direct quote from Jesus this time, but he's still speaking authoritatively as God's representative. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. 
And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Now, again, this is not about spousal abuse or adultery or anything like that. It's about whether or not, if you're married to someone who's not a Christian, you ought to stay married. And Paul's unequivocal answer is yes. If they're willing to stay married to you, then stay married to them. In verse 14, he goes on to explain that believers don't need to be afraid that somehow their kids are contaminated by their unbelieving spouse. On the contrary, he says, the spouse is sanctified through you. Now, clearly that can't mean that people who are married to Christians can somehow be saved on the last day, regardless of whether they trust Jesus or not. But what does it mean? I think it must mean that through their marriage, the unbeliever is somehow set apart. That's what sanctified means. They're set apart to serve God through serving their believing spouse and their children. Your presence as a believer in the family actually sets your spouse apart for God's use. Not in terms of salvation, but in terms of being a blessing to you, in terms of loving you and loving your family helping you to raise a family together. But what if your unbelieving partner wants to bail on you because you've become a Christian? What if they insist on a divorce? Well, in that case, says Paul, let them go. God has called us to live in peace. I mean, when you think about it, what alternative do you have? Are you going to lock them up so they can't escape? You're going to spend the rest of your life stalking them, trying to get them back. Now, in the end, if we're going to live at peace, you've got to let them go. There's just no other option. And Paul says, that's okay. It's obviously not ideal, but it's okay. It's not the end of the world. It's very hard for Christians to just sort of let that go because they desperately want their husband or their wife to be saved. But in verse 16, Paul says, How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? He understands that a Christian's spouse will want their spouse to be saved. But in the end, we actually haven't got any control over that. We're not capable of bringing people to faith. And so whatever happens, whether their partner stays or goes, the believer can trust God to be in control rather than thinking that it's up to them. If I don't hang on to this person for dear life, then they won't be saved. Paul's saying you've got no control over that. You're free to let them go. So let's try and sum this up. Uh, In chapter 7, Paul's been writing to Christians who are single. He's been writing to Christians who are married to other Christians. And he's been writing to Christians who are married to non-Christians. Which I think kind of covers every category of Christian, doesn't it? You're either single or married. But what is his overall message? What sort of ties it all together? Is there any sort of theme that pulls it all in? No, I think actually the answer is yes, there is. 
And the theme is, the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. So we have a tendency to think that if only I could change my circumstances, if only I could be in a different situation, then everything would be better. If only I were married, I'd be more godly. If only I was single and free, then I'd really be able to serve the Lord. I'd have so much more time. And Paul says, no, actually, that's not the case. Godliness is not about your circumstances. You can see it there in verse 18. If you're uncircumcised, that is, if you're a Gentile, you don't need to become circumcised. You don't need to become a Jew, or vice versa. Uh, Believe it or not, it's possible. The presence or absence of a foreskin, he says, has nothing to do with godliness. You can be godly whether you're circumcised or not. Verse 21, if you're a slave who's come to trust in Jesus, well, then rest assured that you've been freed from the worst kind of slavery. Slavery to sin and death and Satan in Christ Jesus. You can serve God as a slave. Obviously, it's not ideal in that sense. If you can get free, then go for it. But you don't need to think, oh, I I really can't serve God properly until I'm free. And on the flip side, if you're free, remember that you're now owned by Jesus, he says. You're his slave. He bought you with his blood and you belong to him. Now, certainly if you've been converted while you're working as a prostitute or a hitman or something like that, then you should get a new job. But whether you're married or single, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, attracted to the same sex or the opposite sex, you can serve God equally faithfully in either situation. If you're married, stop thinking that life would be better if you were single. If you're unmarried, stop thinking that marriage will solve all your problems. The grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. If it were, God would have put you there. So whatever your circumstances, he says, stop looking over the fence and envying people in the other situation, admiring the grass on the other side. Instead, trust God to look after you. Trust him to feed you and get on with serving him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to be content in whatever situation you put us in. Help us to look to Jesus as the one who provides the intimacy and meaning and love that we need. Help us to trust him and to serve you in whatever situation we're in. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Probably got time for one question. Does anyone want to ask a question? Yeah, so verse 14, uh, he says, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the believing wife has been sanctified through a believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. What does he mean by that? I think what he means is you don't need to worry that your children are somehow sort of spiritually contaminated by your unbelieving spouse. That actually... Uh, they are, we should bring them up as though they're believers 
uh, trusting that they are part of God's family. It's not like they're sort of contaminated by your unbelieving spouse. Well, yeah, anything like that. Yeah, he says, no, that's, that's not a thing. It's actually our holiness spreads rather than um, unholiness contaminating. Yeah. We should probably finish, but if you've got a question, uh, come and grab me outside. It'll be good. Thanks.